please turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus 14. Exodus 14. We're, we're going to focus on just four verses, but we'll pull from some of the surrounding um, verses and, and chapters. Uh, but I, I want us to, to kind of focus on a particular thought. But as we turn there, remember that this is a, a famous chapter of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And uh, many of us know that, or we've seen even the movie, The Ten Commandments, um, that this whole scene is depicted in. But the Israelites have been in slavery. Moses has brought them out of slavery. And they've been in the wilderness not very long at all. And they find themselves here and the um, Egyptians are coming. And so we'll, we'll step off in verse 10. And if you would, please remember that this is the word of God and let's take heed how we hear it. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of the Israel, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Well, we often find ourselves in difficult positions, right? Trying positions. And I don't necessarily mean physical. We, we deal with things that cause us anxiety, things that, that worry us. And sometimes it seems like there's no way out of them, right? Sometimes uh, we, we find... We run into things that go on in our family. Maybe it's a problem between spouses. Maybe it's an issue with a child. Whatever it might be, it seems that, that we can't fix this situation or that we can't get out of it. And if it's maybe not with our families, it might be something with our jobs. We have <clears throat> tight deadlines that there's no way we're going to be able to fix or get the work done in the right amount of time. Maybe it's not jobs. Maybe it's we're dealing with deaths in the family or sicknesses. I know that we, we all have had times where it seems like there is no way out. Just as I'm sure Israel felt at this moment in their life. And so I, I, I want to ask, what is our response in difficult and trying and seemingly impossible situations? 
Now, I'm, I want to come right off the bat because I know that when we are in these types of situation, that the pain is real, that the, the hurt is there, that the anxiety is, is weird, that the worry, that the depression, these are all very real things. And not that we forsake God, but sometimes it's easy for us to forget that He is enough. And I know sometimes when we're in those, those dark times, it doesn't help for somebody to come up and say, hey, He's enough, right? Sometimes we need hugs. Sometimes we need a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes we need somebody to reach down and to, to pull us up and give us more than just a few words. But I, I want us to focus on the title of our sermon today. He is enough. Thursday morning I was uh, hiking with a friend of mine who we so affectionately call Aruba, and we were talking about this. And I said, so often we change two words. And he said, he made the point, he said, when you change two words in that sentence, Drew, they are on polar opposite sides of the spectrum. And it matters a lot because your perspective will change. And so as we go through and we start working through this passage, I want us to kind of remember those three words that he is enough. And like I said, I, I don't want to come off insensitive to the situations that we are going through. But my, remembering these three words, might it help us to focus on God as we go through these, different, and these difficult situations. And I, I want us to kind of do this by, let's, let's look at this situation and consider the situation that the Israelites are in. And then I want us to notice the Israelites' response, then Moses' response, and as we close, we'll, we'll look at the end of the story, which we all know how it ends. Let's, let's look first in, in the beginning of verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel, lit, Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. This is a, an interesting position that the Israelites have found themselves. They have nowhere to go. The sea is to their east. They have a mountain range to their south. And to the northwest, here comes the Egyptians. And many commentators have said they, that this is not a slow sort of marching to get the Israelites. It's almost as a surprise attack. So, the Israelites are in a very, very poor tactical position. There's no escape. There's, there's no naval to, or there's no naval vessels or navy ships to, to rescue them out of the ocean. They have nowhere to run. And not only that, they're, they're, even if they could, they can't outrun the Egyptians' chariots. And the situation is dire because they know they're going to die. I want us to think about the Israelites for a moment. I'm sure they're tired and weak from 
years and years of slavery, but also as, as the time came for them to leave Egypt, times were more difficult. They definitely had no army to defend themselves against or with. There probably wasn't a whole lot of swords or spears or definitely no sort of organization amongst the Israelites that they might be able to put up even a, a minuscule defense against the Philistines. They didn't know tactics. They were just brick makers. So any sort of man-made solution to the problem was gone. Think about it from a parent's perspective. Fathers. You turn and you see the Egyptians coming. You're hearing the thunder of the, of the hooves and you, you tend to look over and you see your wife and kids standing there. Think about the, the feeling that would immediately overwhelm you as a, as a failure to protect your family. You know that the Egyptians are coming and the things that you treasure and the people that you love the most in life, you can't do anything to stop what is about to happen to them. Mothers, you look over at the man who gives you the strength that you need in life. Perhaps it's, he doesn't provide the, 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 you know, the most luxurious things or he is not always the perfect man that you want, but you always know that no matter what difficult situation you find yourself in, you always can run to his embrace for safety. And you see the look of concern on your face. And you know that something's wrong and he's trying to make it seem like nothing is wrong. And as you start to come to that realization, you feel two little arms grab your leg. And you look down and you see your children. The ones that you carried for nine months. The ones that you changed diapers you put bottles in their mouth. You nursed them when they were, were growing. And when they were sick, you didn't sleep. You stayed up and for sometimes days caring for them. And you know that they're about to die. And maybe as you look at them, you glance up behind them and there's the grandparents. And from a grandparent's perspective, you want to protect this family, but you know you're, you're up in age and that you're maybe not as physically strong as you used to be. And you sit there and, and, you, and you look at your son or daughter with their family and you think, I don't want to have to bury one of my children. And maybe you, you maybe as grandparents, you, you never lost a child. But you know, as you hear the thundering hooves coming, that you and your son or daughter are about to experience what it's like to lose a child in the next few moments. Teenagers, Think about it from your perspective. 
especially if you're, if you're a little bit older. Think about it coming from the oldest one's perspective. Because what are you as the oldest? You're the protector and the provider of all your little brothers and sisters, right? And you look and you see your, your younger siblings who maybe are just scared of the loud hooves coming. But you mature to adulthood in a matter of two-tenths of a second when it comes to the conclusion and you realize that there's no way out and there's nothing you can do to help save your family. It's utter helplessness. What was the Egyptian mindset at this time? If you, if you glance over to, to chapter 15, verse 9, this is Moses. He's talking of the Egyptians, and he says, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, and my hand shall destroy them. There is a huge difference between going into battle against an evenly matched opponent Thoughts such as, I hope I make it, come to mind. I hope I don't have to bear any of my friends. And I hope that I'm not horribly wounded. Those thoughts are completely different when you're going into a position where you know that you will just dominate this enemy. And if you could sit there from the Israelites' perspective and look up to the hills and see the chariots. If we've all kind of seen in movies where there's, you, they focus on something, they zoom in, do that with me, and, and jump into the chariots. And we see the, from the Egyptian perspective, the Israelites down in a horrible position. There's no way for them to go. And the better news for us is that they can't defend themselves. This is not going to be a fair fight, and it's a good time to be an Egyptian. There's no probably zero sense of fear. You could almost see swords spinning in arms, teeth gritting. Finally, these Israelites that have caused my family and our whole nation problems, we're going to be done with it. The generals or the commanders, hey, maybe this is what I get. This is what I need to get a promotion. Pharaoh is going to be super happy when I tell him that we've destroyed the Israelites. Perhaps the soldiers were thinking, hopefully by nightfall I'll be back with my family and I can pick up the pieces of the farm or whatever the life that's been destroyed by this God. And we will show this God that he can't protect his people. The the interesting thing as if you look at the beginning of verse, or chapter 14 and verse 2, this is the Lord. And he says, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp. The Lord put the Israelites here. And they were alone, and they had lost all hope. Doesn't God often put us and difficult positions so that the only place we can turn to him or we can turn to is him. Our, our wives can't make the situ- situation go away. Our bosses can't. Whatever, whatever the solution that we might be able to think of 
It's out of our control. And I think so often this happens because we think that we are enough. We can, we can fix this situation. It's easy to be thankful to God when times are going right or times are going well, when we're making extra money and we get that yearly bonus or when our health is, is well. And we tend to think, well, I did all that on my own. I'm enough. And this is where we flip those two key words and turn a truth statement into a question of, li- of a lie. Instead of coming to this situation and saying that he is enough, we flip two words and it turns that statement into a question of is he enough? And the minute we do this, the minute we change those two words, we set ourselves up for failure. Because no longer are the promises of God enough. No longer is the life that he's given us, the people he's put in our life, no longer are those enough. No longer is he enough. He is enough. Let's look at Israel's response. Let's see if they had this mindset. Verse Excuse me, the end of verse 10 and 11. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Now, at first, this might seem good. Oh, the Israelites, they, they turn to God. They've come to this position, and the only place, the only thing that they realize they can do is to cry out to God. Well, they did cry out to God, and I, but I don't believe this was out of sincere or earnest respect. I, I think it's really a kind of shadow of what was said to Moses. They cried out to God, but I'm sure it was more so of a, why did you bring me into this position? Why is this going on? Aren't we your people? Aren't you supposed to protect us? And we're about to die. I'm sure it was something more like that. John Calvin was saying that it was silly to think that that any of these prayers would have been heartfelt, especially considering what spewed out of their mouth in verse 11. They asked Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? They turn on, they turn on Moses. And then they, they come up with these crazy accusations and in these questions they're not honest no 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 they're snarky and they're they're condescending they're saying it's it's your fault that we're all about to die they pin it on moses it's like they want to get one last sort of victory before they die and so instead of remembering what god has done I mean, this, this is the people that, that just came out of Israel, or out of Egypt. They had seen all 
the plagues. They had seen God's response. They had seen God's deliverance. And oh, by the way, if you read in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 14, it talks about an angel of God and a pillar of cloud. I mean, all they had to do was turn their attention from the, Israel, or from the Egyptians and look and see the, God's presence. And yet, what do they do? They forget that God is enough. And they ask the question, is he enough? And they become convinced that he's not. And so they lose hope. And they become angry. And they turn on Moses. Verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would be better for us to, to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Didn't we tell you, Moses, that we didn't want to be here? We didn't want to be rescued. You should have left us there. Well, how did, how did this whole thing even start? Chapter 2, verses 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry from rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. It wasn't Moses' fault. Moses wasn't out in the wilderness and said, Oh, how about, God, can you give me um, a cool staff and my brother, and we'll go free your people. Moses didn't say that. No, the people of Israel cried out to God. And God provides them a deliverer. And what do they do? They turn on the one who has delivered them. Does that sound like a familiar story? They tell Moses, didn't we tell you so? We're right, you're wrong. And what's crazy is they say, we would rather serve the enemy of God than God himself. I mean, look at the Egyptians. They're doing just fine. It'd be a good day to be an Egyptian right now. Don't we do that when we find ourselves in situations? We go, I, I, Lord, I don't know what's going on. Why am I in this position? My, my neighbors or my coworkers, they have more money than me. They, they have more things than me. Their house is better. And they don't, they don't even speak your name. And when they do, it's a curse word. They don't go to church. I read my Bible, I pray, I do family worship, I do all these things. Why am I going through this? We know that God has a plan for everything. We know that it all centers around His glory. And we so often cry out to God and question Him. And, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong to wrestle with that. I know there's tension there. But just like my friend Aruba was saying, it's totally, two totally different spectrums. When we come to God out of a sinful question, is he enough? And we say, Lord, I, 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 why are you doing this? This isn't fair. This isn't fun. This isn't right. I'm better than this. I don't deserve this. That's completely different than from remembering that he is enough and we come to God and we say, Lord, 
I'm struggling. I don't know what's going on in this situation. I know that you're enough. I get that in my head, but in my heart, I don't feel it. And Lord, forgive me for, for doubting you. And, and it would be nice to have a question, but Lord, no matter what happens in this situation, may you get the glory and not me. That is a completely different paradox. So, when we come to God, it's, it's fine. God wants to hear us. God, God wants to give us hugs, in a sense. He loves his children, right? But we do so out of respect. Many of you have heard of the name Horatio Spafford. <clears throat> Spafford um, lived in Chicago and worked as a realtor, um, or as an attorney in the real estate business. And in 1871, the, the big Chicago fire happened and basically took away a ton of Horatio's money. And not only that, his four-year-old son, his only son, died of scarlet fever. Now, Horatio Spafford was friends with D.L. Moody and, and Ira Sankey, who were having a revival over in England. And Horatio had been pouring his life into his work. That's how he dealt with his grief. And he was trying to help all those people that had lost all of their things. And so Horatio decided to take his family to England to go to the revivals and then to enjoy a vacation. And so he gets to New York City, and he's, they're about to board the ship when something um, comes up and that keeps him from paying, or being able to go. So instead, he, he puts his family, which included his wife and four girls, Maggie, Tanetta, Annie, and Bessie, and he sends them out to England, promising that he would be with them soon. And then on November 22nd, 1873, the ship, the Ville du Havre, struck another ship. And within two hours, the ship goes down. Horatio finds this out because he receives a telegram from his wife that says, Saved alone. Horatio gets on a ship, and as he's sailing across the ocean, one night in December, the captain pulls him aside and he says, this is where the ship that your daughters and your wife were on. And so Horatio stares out into the blackness, and he goes down to his ship, or to his cabin, and he's attempting to sleep, which... I'm sure he was not able to. Do you think he was struggling with this question? Do you think he was wrestling with the fact that he, that God is enough? He lost his only son and now his four daughters, all in a matter of a few years. His money is all gone. I'm sure he was wrestling with this. But instead of asking the question 
he says, it is well. May the will of God be done. And then, of course, you all know that he penned the famous hymn, It is well with my soul. And if you look at that first verse, there's so much truth to that. When sorrows would like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And he can say that because he knows that God is enough. And that's where he puts his, his trust and his faith in. We saw this situation. We see the Israelites' response. Let's look at Moses' response. Verse 13. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which will work for you today. If I was Moses, I have no idea what my response would be to these people. It would definitely not be kind. It would definitely probably not be God-centering, Christ-centering. Let's take you from where you are to where you should be. But that's exactly what Moses does, what Moses does doesn't he? He, in a sense, says, hey, he is enough. And it's not recorded here, nor do I, do I want to input my own sort of what uh, happened um, or my own... I don't want to create a story that's not there or put something in Scripture that shouldn't be there. But, but it, would see that, that Moses, it would seem that Moses has not forgotten what God has done. He remembers and he encourages the Israelites at this time. Sometimes we go through difficult situations because we have to minister to other people that are going through that exact same situation. And we have to be able to grab them and give them a hug and remind them that he is enough. And that's what Moses does. He points them back. I love how he says, don't fear. Stand firm and watch. Stop being scared. Why? Because God will deliver you. Just like he has for the last several months. Just like he's led us through the wilderness. We're in this position. It looks like everything's going to end in a bloodbath, but it's not. He continues on. He says, for the Egyptians that you see today, you shall never see again. It's almost as if he says, but that big scary thing that, that's causing you to ask, is he enough? That's about to be gone. And you're going to see God's glory, God's power, and you're going to realize and you're going to understand that he is enough. Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. Not pick up rocks, not form a defensive position. The Lord is going to fight for you, and you have only to be silent. There's a time when we're in difficult situations that we need to act. And there's times when we need to just be still and be quiet and know our place. 
And this is one of those moments. Moses tells them to be quiet, be still, and watch. Watch God work this salvation out for them. And this is great. Why? Because if you think of your favorite team, your sports team, maybe, or a fighter, right? There's always a winning record, and there is a losing category, right? And it doesn't matter who your favorite fighter is, who your favorite um, uh, team is. They all have a number in that L category, don't they? But not with God. He's undefeated. And your favorite sports team might have only been around for a, a hundred years or maybe longer, but God has been around for all eternity. And he's undefeated. And he fights for us. That right there alone should know that he, help us to realize and understand that he is enough. We see the situation. We see Israel's response. We see Moses' response. Let's quickly look at God's response. Let's um, jump around for a few verses within this chapter. The, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. I don't think the Lord was necessarily rebuking Moses, but he's it's in a sense of why, why are you asking me this question? Tell the Israelites to go for it. You know, it's, it's almost like if your child comes up to you and they, they ask you either a completely obvious question or, and you just say, stop, just let's go over here, right? God's saying, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And let's skip to verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. And we know what happens next, right? Moses parts the waters, the ground becomes dry. The Israelites move forward through it. And as they get to the other side, Moses' statement that the Lord would make it so they never see those Egyptians again comes true. The waves crash. And in verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. God often delivers us from these difficult times in in ways that we never expect. And So often, he leaves no room for you in that sort of deliverance. God is enough. He is enough. I would encourage you this afternoon, maybe, or tonight, look at the next chapter and read Exodus 15. It is 
a chapter that I love just uses words and imagery of God that we typically don't see. And I think it's, um, it's, it's awesome and it's amazing. <clears throat> and it's reflection of the Israelites' heart now that they trust the Lord and they trust Moses. So what does all this have to do with us today? Like I said, I, I know the situations are, are tough. Sometimes these situations are not short relatively like the Israelites were. We're talking within a few hours. They went from sh sheer terror and, ho and hopelessness to, to, to singing the song of Moses. In chapter 15. But so often, our situations are longer. And we struggle, maybe not for hours. We might struggle for days, weeks, months. Sometimes even our whole lifetime we'll be struggling with things. So I want, I want to ask you, are you changing a statement into a question? When we come to these difficult times, do we, do we cry out to God and say, you're enough? Do we remind ourselves that he is enough? Lord, we know that, that like I said before, we, I know it in my head, but how do I experience it? Is he enough for you? Is he enough for you in salvation? Do you cling to him and to him alone for your salvation? Or do you think that you're enough for your salvation? Do you think that, that maybe your works, that, that whatever uh, your good deeds, that that's enough for your salvation? That somehow that is going to come to God and say, I deserve to be saved because of this. Let me tell you, the, the most terrifying, the most scary position to be in is in the need for salvation and not turning to God. And just like the Israelites could give nothing to God in this particular situation, you can give nothing to God for your salvation. And what you need to do is to stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Repent of your sins. Believe in Christ. He is enough for your salvation. Let us resolve to trust that He is enough. Moses is a great example of this. Let's have the mindset of his. But what about Elijah? How about Calvin or Martin Luther or Polycarp, Daniel? Or how about Spafford? Like I said, I, I know that these times are difficult. And when you're experiencing the loss of something or, or you're struggling, it's sometimes... 
hearing the words, he is enough, it, 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 it doesn't. That's not what you need. But that is exactly what we need. Maybe with a hug, maybe with a word of encouragement, like I said, maybe with a hand to pick us up. Let's not pursue a question that is a lie, but let's pursue a statement that is true and will always be true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. You know, Father, we're, we're so thankful that in times of difficulty, of loss, of whatever, when there seems like there is no hope, there is always hope because you are enough. Father, strengthen your people today. Show us that you are enough and remind us of this, Father. And help us to, to put our arms around those who are struggling or to remind us ourselves if we struggle with something that you are enough, that you love us and you take care of us. Might we, as we go from here today, show those around us that you are enough. We ask this in your son's name, amen.